name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. How would you describe 2023? Unpredictable? Tense? Volatile? Or just plain old busy? An argument can probably be made for any one of those. 2023 is the year we finally, irrevocably saw the end of LIBOR, with the remaining five US dollar settings published on a representative basis for the final time. An event that took years of painstaking planning and preparation, right up to the June 30th deadline. This wasn't the only big event to keep firms busy. March saw a succession of US bank failures, including Silicon Valley Bank, which collapsed as a result of risk management failures combined with a high interest rate environment and a rapid loss of deposits. In Europe, the acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS changed the landscape for investment banking in a way that hasn't occurred since the financial crisis. On the regulatory side, US prudential agencies published their long-awaited take on the final Basel III standards, while various regulators continued to highlight the potential vulnerabilities posed by non-bank financial intermediation, a topic we're likely to hear more about in 2024. And all of this occurring in an environment of economic uncertainty, high inflation, and geopolitical tensions. Now, everyone has their own holiday traditions. Here on The Swap, ours is to chew the cud over the year that was and prognosticate about the future. To help me do that, I'm joined by ISDA CEO Scott O'Malia and Chairman Eric Litvak. Scott, Eric, a very big welcome to you both. Thanks, Dick. Great to be back. Great to be here, Nick. Scott, you'll be relinquishing your role as question master and taking another turn in the hot seat. And Eric, it's your third time as guest, which is a record for us on the swap. In the words of Bob DeRoe, famously sampled by De La Soul, three is a magic number. So we're very excited to have you back. Now, as I've just said, three is a magic number. So Eric, describe 2023 in three words. I'm going to go with 1970s flashback. Return of inflation, rising rates, geopolitical risk. I'm even seeing some worrying signs of flared trousers and sideburns. Eric, it's almost like you've been looking inside my wardrobe. <laughs> and Scott? My three words is I can't compete on that, but I think Eric's right. A lot of more of the same in, uh, this year and potentially next year. Obviously, the geopolitical stuff is really disturbing and the high inflation, everybody's trying to manage that as well. So those are the two big issues that I think we're, we're looking at across the globe. Okay, Scott, I'm going to ask you to expand on that a little bit, as well as what you've just said. What do you think are the biggest events of the year for derivatives markets? Well, I think the big part is ending LIBOR. I think that that's an important element. I'm sure we'll discuss that later in the podcast. And then kind of looking forward for derivative markets, I think the Treasury clearing is going to be the big issue. So those two big issues, landing LIBOR, and then how we're going to deal with Treasury clearing, which is an SEC proposal. Eric, what about you? So the driving factor for me has been the return of inflation and rising rates. That's been the driver of risk throughout the year. It's not the only risk because there's been a lot of geopolitical risk. But it's that risk that notably drove the Silicon Valley bank crisis and related failures, which is having continuing today to have knock-on effects even if the system is stabilized. I'm not going to reiterate what Scott mentioned about LIBOR, but very important. Also, I guess 2023 was the year that AI buzz replaced crypto buzz. Okay, well, that's uh, a few topics that we can get our teeth into. So let's pick up what Scott was talking about a moment ago, and that's the end of LIBOR. 
that was a little bit of a non-issue, really, wasn't it, Eric? So I described this on a previous podcast as the dog that didn't bark. To some extent, yeah, it's been a non-issue, but in the sense that there's been no market disruption and really remarkably little fuss in the run-up to the June 30th deadline. But remember, almost every overnight success has been years in the making. The success of the LIBOR transition was only because there was enormous amounts of meticulous planning and preparation by the public and private sectors over a period of six years, really. Let's not forget, this was one of the biggest structural changes in the history of financial markets, affecting hundreds of trillions of dollars of contracts. And US dollar LIBOR, which ended this year, accounted for the largest portion of that. So the fact that industry participants and policymakers came together to identify alternative reference rates, encourage adoption of, for new trades, put in place a robust framework for legacy contracts and fallbacks, that was huge. And that contributed to ultimately this being which you call a non-event, together with all the efforts by the public sector to promote the transition to SOFR. All that was a collective effort to ensure that the one date of June 30th happened to be an overnight success. Scott, can you pick up on some of those points, and particularly Eric's reference to the fallbacks? How important was that? Yeah, essential. That made the difference, I think. And I think also kind of pave the way for what the transition would look like. Is it a, an important economic model that we had that in order to have people map from LIBOR to SOFR or other risk-free rates, it gave you the economic equivalent, which people could therefore kind of set their books to and understand how that was going to play through. The contractual fallback also protected all of the legacy contracts going forward, which was critical. And that was developed, here it is, duh, working with the membership, Working with regulators, as Eric said, the alignment with public and private sector was essential. I think it began all the way back in 2016 is when we first received that first letter saying, how will ISDA deal with the transition from LIBOR from the official sector? And that's when we went to work. Now, Eric's point about educating the market, the uh, fallbacks were adopted or the protocol that changed the fallbacks from LIBOR to SOFR, the other risk-free rates, were adopted by more than 16,000 counterparties from 92 countries that were adhering to this. ISTA has a thousand members. So it gives you a clear perspective that this is everywhere. It's in all these contracts, small ones or twos. People may have very few contracts, but 16,000 counterparties in 92 countries. That's an amazing change for the market. As Eric said, the most significant change we've seen in financial markets. And it did go off without really any trouble at all. So there's a little bit more work to be done, right? There's other jurisdictions, Canada's CEDOR and Japan's Euro-Yen Tibor coming up. And we'll apply those fallbacks to those currency pairs as well. Yep, so one big change to market structure successfully navigated, but it looks as if we're going to have another one. And this comes back to something that you said a moment ago, Scott, as well, and that's Treasury clearing. So the US Securities and Exchange Commission is voting on a proposed rule to increase clearing of US Treasuries, pretty much as we're recording this podcast. Obviously, because of that, we don't know the details of the rules yet or the outcome of the vote, although that will be clear to everyone listening by the time this episode is actually published. But assuming the SEC approves a requirement to increase clearing of US Treasuries, what implications does that have? And Scott, let's hear from you first. Well, the treasury market is the oil that keeps the wheels of the financial system turning. It has an impact on everything from derivatives and particularly in collateral management. It's therefore vital that we think about the various implications and consequences of the SEC rule. Now, Gary Gensler will say 
that clearing will make things safer. It'll help reduce settlement risk. He thinks, and I generally believe he's quite confident in this, that it will enhance liquidity. It potentially could. And it will increase transparency and balance sheet capacity. Those things are the positives that could come as a result of this. But there are also some additional costs, and particularly there's a huge operational lift that we're going to have to undertake in order to develop the documentation, the processes, and segregation requirements for client margin that will have to be brought into this. Of course, we're guessing at this right now. As you noted, we don't know what the final terms, and I don't want to get you know, the sky is falling on this one. We'll have to see how the SEC votes. But there will be, anyway, they come out, there will be a massive lift for clients to onboard to the new regulatory requirements and mandates. And it feels to me like this is somewhere between the non-cleared margin work of helping everybody get the documentation in order and then have the new custody arrangements put in place. I don't think it's going to be as simple as swap clearing because I think we had more options. We had more clearinghouses already in place. Now, we've had two good podcasts earlier in the year. We've been talking about some time. We've had Brian Ruan from Bank of New York Mellon, and most recently, we had Frank LaSalle from the DTCC. So, those podcasts, you can kind of listen to those in our library and, and get a sense of how big a deal this is and the work that has to go into it. Frank LaSalle was pretty clear about the operational lifts of integrating clearing for clients into this market. That's great. Um, Eric, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? So just to reiterate, the U.S. Treasuries are the largest, most widely held safe asset in the world. And the U.S. Treasury repo market is a fundamental constituent of global dollar funding. So this isn't just a domestic concern. The proposed change is of global importance. I agree with Scott. It's crucial that any change should be cautious to avoid degrading market access or market liquidity. At a time when Treasury issuance is at record highs, is expected to rise to as much as $46 trillion by the end of 2033, the existing constraints on Treasury liquidity, which were seen in a number of stress events over the past 10 years, and most notably in the March 2020 dash for cash, it's sensible to re-examine the market structure to see if it's fit for purpose, to see if it can be improved. But we need to think carefully about whether and how the various measures might interact to potentially reduce capacity, increase costs, and impact liquidity in this critical market. That means looking at the regulatory framework for U.S. Treasuries and market participants throughout the value chain to ensure that everything is properly aligned towards ensuring that we have the market functioning effectively and efficiently. I'd add that we have significant experience in Europe of sovereign repo clearing, but it's primarily an interbank service. Efforts that have been made in recent years to expand clearing beyond direct clearing members have been extremely challenging. Remember, clearing members have to be very creditworthy, able to accept neutralized risk with other members, and able to participate in the clearing house's default management. Anything less, and you import excessive risk into the central market utility for managing risks on a systemic scale, with the consequences being neutralized across participants. So as it sounds currently, Prudential requirements, notably the leverage ratio and some liquidity ratios, could weigh on market capacity to provide clearing services to a broad range of customers. There's also issues around, uh, I think as Scott was referencing, the capacity of the clearinghouse itself to onboard a wide range of customers. Also coming across this is the, uh, the proposed SHC changes to the definition of dealer and government securities dealer, which could have an impact on the willingness of non-bank trading firms to maintain their current very high activity levels. So again, something that needs to be approached with caution because this is a multi-year process if it, to be done properly. Maybe I'd like to jump in on that, on that dealer 
designation, if we look back at the swap dealer designation, it didn't really amount to much, right? We had a bunch of participants that were in the market providing liquidity. And when they saw the option to become swap dealers, they backed away. And I have real concerns that that might be the same case here. And therefore, we don't want to hurt liquidity. And if, if bank balance sheets and costs are going to be constrained due to higher capital rules that we're currently debating under Basel, who else is going to be in there to provide liquidity? And if you disincentivize other large liquidity providers, that could hurt liquidity. And as Eric said, this market's getting larger, not smaller. And the importance of this market is critical. I also think that we have a little policy inconsistency here because if Gary Gensler does believe that it's safer and we are getting safety and soundness from clearing, why doesn't that reflect in any of the capital treatment, particularly the leverage ratio? So I think we need to kind of make sure we reconcile both the clearing mandate and the capital treatment of these treasury products to make sure that we get the, the balance around liquidity right. Yeah, indeed. We'll be looking closely at the SEC vote and the rules when they're actually published. I'm going to be asking you guys a little bit later on for predictions for 2024, but I'm going to sneak in early with one of my own. US Treasury clearing is going to be an issue that we will be discussing on this podcast and in other formats many, many times in 2024. Now, Scott, going back to the leverage ratio, which you mentioned a moment ago, that's a nice segue into the capital rules. All of the major jurisdictions have now published their proposed rules to implement the final Basel III measures, with US regulators publishing their notice of proposed rulemaking in July. What's your views on this, Eric? Let's start with you. Well, I guess the first issue to focus on is that the implementation dates are not aligned. We have major Japanese banks who will need to comply from March of next year. The EU proposals currently set to go live at the beginning of 2025. US regulators have proposed to implement mid-25. The UK Prudential Regulatory Authority announced initially alignment with the Basel calendar for early 2025 and then subsequently pushed back six months aligning it with the U.S. Certainly, further harmonization of the timelines would be useful to avoid a, a staggered and un uncoordinated rollout, which would be adding a lot of unnecessary complexity, notably for, for banks that are active internationally. But it's not just timing. It's not just the, the difference in implementation timing. The various different proposals also diverge in the way they approach the, the Basel transposition. U.S. regulators, for example, have opted to remove the option for more sophisticated banks to use credit risk internal models. So that deviates from the Basel Committee's approach, also from the approach taken in other jurisdictions. Really, the only place today left in the proposals for U.S. banks to apply internal models is for market risk. Conversely, applying internal models to market risk in Europe is significantly more complicated. So we've got challenges in terms of really important deviations, not just in the in what's applied, but how it's applied. Come back to our core message, it is that we've always said the capital framework needs to be risk sensitive, needs to be risk appropriate, and needs to be as consistent as possible across the board. This fragmentation and disproportionate increases in capital, disproportionate operational complexity to implement just forces participants to retreat from certain activities, certain trading, certain intermediary businesses. And that adds to the capacity constraints that we see. It raises financing and hedging costs for end users. It's just the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Scott, your views, please. 
Well, I think these rules put a heavy focus on the use of standardized approach capital models. As they are adopted, it will be increasingly important for banks to implement these models consistently and in line with the regulatory requirements. You could argue whether this complete and pretty substantial move to standardized approach is a good policy outcome. We're going to get behaviors that are going to be very consistent. But to help that move and to help address and help our banks members be prepared for this, uh, ISDA has developed a benchmarking solution through what our platform called ISDA Analytics that allows banks to analyze and identify and explain any anomalies in their model outputs. This allows banks to correct any irregularities before the regulatory requirements go live, as well as ensure that they're not holding more capital than is required. Regulators can also use this data to monitor their implementation in the various jurisdictions and understand prior to implementation how these are going to impact behaviors and think about any drivers of divergence. So it's, again, a, a tool that we can help the membership with standardizing their analysis, their risk bucketing, a very, very helpful tool. And it's been widely used. I think we've had over 70 banks using it, 20 jurisdictions engaged with it as well from the official sector. So I think it's a very important tool to to get the right outcome here. Yeah, indeed. And we'll be talking a little bit more about ISDA's various solutions and the fact that more information on that is available on the ISDA website a little bit later on. But... Capital requirements have obviously been a big regulatory focus. I'd like to switch, though, to another focus, and that's the perceived vulnerabilities in non-bank financial intermediation, or MBFI, which is a lot less of a mouthful. This is likely to be a priority in 2024, and regulators are looking at everything from margin practices, use of leverage, liquidity mismatches, and transparency. How do you think this will play out? Scott, let's get your views on this, first of all. I think you're right. It was a priority in 2023. It's going to be a priority in 2024. The book work is not yet complete. And I think regulators are kind of still struggling to define what success looks like here. But on the margin practices, regulators have specifically pointed to six areas, including transparency on CCP markets, liquidity readiness of market participants, and the responsiveness of cleared and non-cleared margin models to stress events. We're expecting a new report on this topic, the margin model topic, from Basel, CPMI, and IOSCO very shortly. But ISDA's already been kind of gotten to work on this and taken action to review the performance of the ISDA standard initial margin model, or ISDA-SIM. Following discussions with global regulators, we've decided to shift to a semi-annual calibration of the model from 2025 to ensure that it remains risk-appropriate and is updated in a very predictable and efficient manner. The original process for updating the ISDA STEM was based on an annual calibration and backtesting exercise in line with the regulatory requirements. This was modified in late 2022 to allow for an off-cycle calibration, and it was in response to the volatility of interest rates. So we did an off-cycle calibration. That was a bit of work, and it required a lot of effort to provide new data, update the model, seek regulatory approval and review, and then implement that model. So to make that process more manageable, we think a twice-yearly update as opposed to an off-cycle that could be more random is a much more efficient way of doing this. So now, the margin model for non-clear products is a very conservative, robust model. So we think this more predictable process and semi-annual calibration will help make sure that the model's fit for purpose and there's a high level of confidence in it. Eric, anything you want to add on that? 
Yeah, it's just a subset of the much broader MBFI issue. But as you noted, some regulators have also started to ask questions again about the levels of transparency in the derivatives market in the context of their efforts to better analyze leverage in the market. Now, it's important to state that a significant amount of information does currently exist that with sufficient data cleansing and analysis could help regulators to spot warning signals. The question is how to get to a point where regulators can spot these exposures in a timely manner. Because the raw data does exist, but there's no doubt that additional time, effort, and resources are needed to make it more functional. Ultimately, that's going to require regulators to invest in systems and data analytics to ensure that reported data is cleaned, standardized, and mapped so that it can be more easily analyzed. And sharing data is a crucial element of this. Steps need to be taken to enable regulators to access data that they're not directly authorized to receive, either because it's reported outside of the jurisdiction or because another domestic regulator has authority over the reporting entity in question. That's not insurmountable. Regulators can sign memorandums of understanding with each other that would enable them to share this information. The key message here is that better use needs to be made of the substantial amounts of data that are already produced. Otherwise, simply asking for more and more data is not going to solve this issue. Okay, thanks for that, Eric. Let's switch topics now to digitization. ISDA recently announced a significant reorganization to bring all of its mutualized solutions under a single digital transformation team. Scott, why? Simple is to make it uh, more efficient to deliver those solutions. We have a number of mutualized industry solutions that are intended to help the different business lines, whether it's legal, risk management, operational solutions, into a more coherent and consistent team, and then thinking about how we align all of those services to increase standardization, to improve automation, and to drive efficiency in the derivatives market. Some of the solutions are well-known. Is the SIM we just talked about, the is the analytics, which is that SA benchmarking, standardized benchmarking, the common domain model, which is a lifecycle taxonomy that we're working with ICMA and ISLA, two European-based trade associations. We have the ISDA Create solution, which is an online document negotiation platform, and the My Library, where you can access all your digital documents in one location on our website. Up until now, we've had separate teams looking at legal standards and documents. We've had teams looking at trade reporting and collateral solutions, as well as capital and risk solutions. When we went out, we assessed, did the market completely understand all the solutions we had? And were they familiar with the solutions and how they would access them? And we found out that there was more work that could be done there to raise awareness and to get better integration with our membership on all these solutions and develop a coherent strategy. If you think about it, some of the, the very important things like FPML that describe products, CDM, which describe lifecycle events, and CRIF, which is a risk taxonomy to manage capital and risk standards. There's a, an opportunity there that we can improve the alignment of those. So we have three basic terms for this team that we've come out of this is align, which is align our services and our team, advance, which is to continue to make improvements and in developing digital and automated solutions, and then adopt. And that kind of speaks for itself. We want to make sure that the membership knows where and how they can integrate these solutions into their systems to make uh, their life much easier and much more efficient. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thanks. Eric, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, perhaps just as a bit of context, this is part of our ongoing efforts to future-proof the market and drive efficiencies through mutualized solutions. As Scott says, these solutions are focused on reducing inefficiencies that exist in derivatives markets and increasing standardization 
digitization and automation to reduce the potential for errors and risks and ultimately cut costs for market participants. A prime example of this effort is ISDA's Digital Regulatory Reporting Initiative. Regulators around the world are changing the derivatives reporting rules to incorporate globally agreed critical data elements intended to improve the consistency and accuracy of reported data. This coming year alone, we'll see the EU, Japan, UK, Singapore amending the reporting rules, falling on from the CFTC at the end of last year. The idea here is the DRR uses the common domain model to convert a common interpretation of new reporting rule amendments into human-readable and machine-readable code. Firms can then either use this directly as the basis of their implementation or to check that their own understanding of the rules is in line with the industry consensus. This has the potential to create significant efficiencies and cost savings as it avoids the need for firms to interpret the rules themselves and develop their own reporting logic. It also delivers more accurate data to regulators, which helps them to identify possible sources of systemic risk. So it's win-win. Okay, we've talked a lot now about the past 12 months. But before I ask you for your predictions for 2024, and I will, let's remind ourselves of what you said for 2023. Your forecasts that you made on the podcast last year included greater regulatory focus on MBFI, increased geopolitical tensions, continued pressures on energy prices, further development of ESG markets, and a focus on clarifying and enhancing the rights of investors following the bankruptcy of a crypto firm. How would you mark yourselves on those predictions? Eric, let's hear from you first. Well, we completely missed South Africa winning the last three games of the Rugby World Cup by a single point. So I'm kind of kicking myself for that one. And we also obviously missed the bank crisis of the first half of the year. And that's a more serious note. What we did pick up on, I think we're pretty much spot on. The focus on NBFI, the geopolitical tensions, that's all there. The one nuance I would give to that is we talked about pressure on energy prices. I think that's still true, but we fortunately got a little bit bailed out by a more moderate climate, so it's less obvious. Unfortunately, because that took some of the risk off the table. But on the whole, I think we scored fairly well. Scott, how would you mark yourself? Clairvoyant, for sure. I think Eric's right. And when you think about NBFI, there's a lot there. And as we discussed, I put the treasury clearing in that camp. So that's going to definitely be a 2024 thing. Of course, geopolitical, unfortunately, geopolitical tensions continue to rise. And Eric's right. Europe dodged, uh, well, they didn't dodge a bullet. They took action to diversify their energy supply. And they've been able to fill reserves, keep prices down, and manage that around Russia. So they've done a remarkable job there to take the pressure off. There's been a flurry of late action due to the COP discussions around sustainability recently, and we're kind of digesting what the outcomes of that were. But we know that IOSCO has put forward some important work on voluntary carbon markets recently as the, the CFTC on some guidance they've had going forward. To use the sports miss, I'm pleasantly surprised that my Michigan Wolverines are top of the table when it comes to American football, and we've got two big final games to play for the national championship. So go blue. Well, if we're talking sport, I may as well come in with mine as well. Biggest surprise for me was England crashing out in the group stages of the Cricket World Cup. Very surprising and not a great outcome for us. But hey-ho, um, there's no putting it off any longer. Let's talk about the predictions for 2024. Scott, let's get yours. Well, I think, unfortunately, geopolitical continues to dominate. We talked about the inflation issues and where the market wants to price a rate cut we're going to continue to talk about that for the next several months. The elections, 
We have a U.S. election. We have a European election and we have a UK election. We have a Taiwanese election, right? These are just some of the many elections that are going to play through with massive consequences for policymaking going forward. So we'll have to see about that. A lot of work to be done on Basel still. IST is about to submit. We've uh, There's a deadline of January 16th and that we have to submit our comments. I think our comment letter right now is running about 150 pages and that's not including the QIS submission. So we're going to provide that all back to the regulators. Appealing for some relief, as Eric said earlier, we think that they have diverged in several areas in the trading book away from risk-based solutions or risk-appropriate solutions. And we're going to be asking for some relief there to make sure that they dial that in appropriately. The consequences could be significant. It's not like we do Basel every year, right? This is a big proposal and they won't return to this for some time. So if they get it wrong, that's going to have impacts on our economies and certainly impact on market liquidity. And we want to avoid that. We want to make sure that the the rules are updated appropriately, but at the same time, we don't want those negative impacts. You mentioned it earlier. I think one of the most exciting things has been the AI work. A lot of interest around that. We're looking at it for potential applications. We have a lot of data Obviously, our members have a lot of data with massive documentation and counterparty relationships and a lot of legacy data. We want to make sure that we can bring all of our data and documents forward in a digital solution. So there could be some AI applications that could be applied there. And I think there's some, if we shift away from crypto, maybe the interest is now kind of the tokenization of assets. And I think uh, we'll continue to kind of contribute to that discussion as we think about digital solutions as well. Eric, let's hear your predictions. So I guess the the overlay to that is the continued erosion of globalization and of international comedy that is driving a number of factors. It will continue uh, to drive geopolitical risk. It will continue to drive the difficulty between countries to find solutions to, to achieve consensus. That's going to make the outlook more and more complex as we have a number of driving issues ahead of us. The elections it's got spoke of, I think, are going to complicate that further as there is a constant risk of a shift to more populist extremes. And then, of course, we have the climate overlay. And I think we continue to see in recent years that climatic disruption is a constant factor, whether it's man-made or whether it's cyclical from El Nino and, and similar issues. But we've seen that climate issues, forest fires, migration are a more constant factor and they drive the social agenda, they drive the political agenda. Yeah, with all of those issues you both mentioned, elections, climate issues, 2024 is going to be an incredibly important year. Okay, so we're nearly at the end. We're going to finish off with a quick fire round so we can get to know a bit more about you. In the true style of a radio or TV quiz, answers must be given without hesitation, repetition or deviation. Okay, so here we go. Eric, favourite holiday destination? The Alps. Scott, favourite sport? American football, college football in particular. Eric, early bird or night owl? Early bird. And night owl. Scott, sweet or savoury? Savoury. Eric, favourite pastime? Reading. Scott, favourite movie? Pass. I don't have a favourite movie. <laughs> you don't have time to watch them. Eric, favourite AGM? The next one. That's a good answer. And Scott, same question for you. Favourite AGM? 
I'm going to go with my first one. That was in Montreal. That was uh, exciting. That was a great AGM, actually. Yeah, That was my first AGM as chairman. I remember it well. Okay, I'm sure you'll be relieved to know that that's all the time we have. Eric, Scott, thanks for being such good sports and thanks for sharing your views. Before we go, just a reminder that next year's AGM, seeing as we were talking about AGMs, will be in Tokyo on April 16th to 18th. Our super early bird rate expires at the end of the year, so please book now to take advantage of the best rates. In the meantime, we'd like to wish all of our members a very happy holiday and a happy new year. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time. 